The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on how we work and how we live. Very little has changed our work and our lives faster and more intensely than the COVID-19 pandemic. The loss of life and the health impacts have been staggering, and the pandemic and the lockdowns have had domino effects as well. We saw an unprecedented amount of technological growth in just a couple of years, and for many workers, a complete rethink of how and why they work. My guest today is Bill Gates. He spent the last few years thinking about all of this. His newest book is How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. Bill Gates is, of course, the co-founder of Microsoft, LinkedIn's parent company. He was one of the first guests to join us on This Is Working when we had to make it a remote show due to countrywide lockdowns in 2020. He had some predictions for us back then, like virtual business meetings were here to stay and online schooling he thought really wasn't. I wanted to bring Bill back on the show to talk to us about what he's learned in the last two years. In particular, what he's learned about how we work. But to kick things off, I asked him to reflect on the wide-ranging COVID vaccine investments he told us about in 2020. And by the way, if this show sounds a little different, it's because we're back in our studio in the Empire State Building for the first time in a while. Here's our conversation. Bill, welcome back to This Is Working. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So when we talked last, uh, April 2020, the pandemic was had really descended. We were all trying to figure out how long it was going to last, how we're going to get out of it. One of the things that you had mentioned was that there were about 100 vaccines and therapeutics that were in the works, eight to 10 of which you found to be uh, really promising and that which the Gates Foundation would be backing. I'd love to understand how those investments panned out. Well, the vaccine uh, ended up getting out even faster than I expected. Uh, wasn't a perfect vaccine. It didn't stop you from getting infected. And the duration is short enough that we're having to do a lot of boosters to maintain the protection against severe disease. But uh, the vaccine, I, I give the world uh, uh, close to an A on how that came together, including ramping up the production worldwide. The therapeutics were a big disappointment. Uh, we've had some antibodies, but they've been hard to get to people in time. We now have a couple quite good antivirals, including Pfizer's Paxlovid, that uh, is starting to save lives. But I expected more in the therapeutic area. We just hadn't built up enough libraries. We didn't have the right trial organization. Um, so I'd give us a, a much worse grade on that. And how do you think about where... At the time, it felt like you were uh, that the Gates Foundation was was spreading its investments, was, was placing bets across all these. If you could go back now, would you have made different decisions about where to put uh, your, your investments? Well, certainly. I mean, this pandemic has uh, provided us a lot of lessons. Uh, our foundation spent an extra two billion uh, focused on the pandemic. Uh, maybe a third of those grants. Uh, had no impact. Um, a few, like uh, ramping up vaccine production in India uh, through serum, had a dramatic impact that that $300 million alone would have justified the entire spending. The antibodies uh, had very modest benefit. 
They're very hard to give out, particularly in poor countries. Uh, one of our therapeutics, dexamethasone, uh, which is a late-stage uh, anti-steroidal drug, that actually did uh, save a number of lives. The oxygen centers we built out in a lot of countries, uh, that was uh, very worthwhile. So it's a mixed bag, but you know, if, you're, if your advantage over governments is that you can move faster, you're often going to be getting grants with very little information. So I'm just thinking from a post-mortem point of view, and I realize we're not in the post-mortem world yet, but it, do you change how you, for the next pandemic as it comes, uh, whenever it comes, or whatever it looks like, do you think you'll change how uh, the foundation spends its money or how would it, how it even looks at some of these possibilities? Well, our foundation primarily works on diseases of poor countries that don't have a natural funding model. You know, diseases in rich countries, uh, you've got government spending, you've got a, a market, people pay a lot of money for drugs that help out. And so I hope that pandemics, because they do affect rich countries, a lot of that infrastructure and preparation should be paid for by governments so that we can keep our focus on things like tuberculosis, malaria, HIV, and all the things that caused uh, a child in uh, a poor country to have over 30 times the risk of dying than a, a child in the United States or other, other rich countries. You know, we, the biggest mistake in the pandemic was that we didn't spend money before it hit to have a team of people who practiced and thought through, okay, how do you get diagnostics rolled out? How do you communicate quarantine policies? A few countries um, moved quickly. And so, you know, Australia has 10% the death rate uh, that the United States has. And that's simply because of their quick response. And so what do you think, when, when you look at the videos coming out of China, as an example, you look at these lockdowns in Shanghai, coming to Beijing, and the the... The, the impact it's been having on citizens, people pushing back against this, even in China, what kind of lessons should the world look to for, from China to say, like, this is how you handle COVID zero? Are they doing it right? What's your take on this? Well, until the Omicron wave came along, it looked like a centrally controlled authoritarian country like China could prevent the infection spreading. Now that we've got this super transmissive variant, even for them, uh, they're having a tough time blocking that spread. And so, you know, Australia, which could enforce quarantine to some degree, but nothing like China, they really had the best of both worlds. They avoided the big case numbers, then they got their vaccine rate up, and then once Omicron hits, they do loosen up a bit, but the deaths were never super high. Uh, because the elderly were protected with two or three doses of, of high-quality vaccines. China's now faced with rushing to get that vaccination level up, uh, because at some point, the cost of trying to avoid Omicron spreading is just going to be too high. But they seem to be accepting the cost right now in terms of human lockdowns. And, and I think that at least, you know, in your book, you really spell out uh, incredibly well, and you've talked a little bit about this, about the, what role government should play, uh, what role the scientific community should play. But I think that a lot of us, or at least I'm speaking for myself, I don't think that we expected the human element to factor in so much here, that the, the anger, the resentment, the pushback, the division 
that happened is people were dealing with uh, any of the COVID restrictions or the requirements. How have you been surprised at all, or were you surprised over the last couple of years at how people responded to the requirements coming to them from government or from the con or the pushback on contact tracing? Do you think about that at all, and how does that play into how we react to the next pandemic? Well, a country like the U.S. will never be able to, you know, impose extreme quarantine. Um, I am surprised that our communicating to all the different, you know, parts of the political spectrum, we didn't have trusted leader leaders so that the entire population could find someone that they trusted who was saying, "Look, the masks are going to save lives. Getting the vaccination rate, particularly." In the elderly up, uh, that's going to make a big difference. There were mistakes made. I mean, the understanding of, you know, were, were lockdowns worth uh, the benefit, um, you know, particularly things like school lockdowns, where now we have these huge educational gaps, uh, you know, that, 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 that should be debated uh, because there's, uh, there's a huge trade-off there. It was much worse in terms of the polarization and you know the the discussion imputing strange motives to people like myself or Tony Fauci, uh, I didn't see that coming. And uh, you know the remedy to that um, is is not as clear as making a, a fantastic vaccine or a you know cheap diagnostic that you can scale up very rapidly. But doesn't it play into how we react to the next pandemic? I mean, is there something that we need to factor in, and maybe this is part of the core of people who are thinking about the next pandemic is assuming that there will be divisions and polarization, or do you think that was uniquely true to this particular pandemic? I think it was true partly because we were faced with such an awful set of circumstances. You know, my recommendations in the book would mean that very few outbreaks would go global. And so, the U.S. is unlikely to be ground zero. Uh, we don't have that many uh, places where we're invading nature or close to animals like you'd find in Africa or in Asia. And so it should be worth a lot to us to help them have the capacity to stop it before it, it gets global. That's you know why I literally say in the title uh, that we can stop from something, something from becoming a pandemic. It's just an outbreak. And then this team of experts uh, at WHO, I call it GERM, Global Epidemic Response and Mobilization, they would make sure you go in and wipe it out uh, before it's getting to uh, the entire world. When you're sketching that out in the book, one of the things you talk about is the more successful you are at wiping it out or at preventing it in a community, the more pushback there might be from the community because they're like, well, why do we have to do all these restrictions when none of this actually happened? You told me to put on masks, you told me to quarantine, and no one I know got sick, so therefore this was all a false alarm. I mean, isn't that a problem? Yeah, no, it's definitely paradoxical that the painful steps you take uh, to avoid the disaster, um, you know, are our building codes too strong because, you know, uh, that's a lot of money you know, maybe the earthquake never comes. Do we overfund fire prevention, you know, because we do such a good job? The number of deaths uh, from fire are way, way down. And so we do count on government to think ahead about uh, 
tornadoes or pandemics and get experts to come together. The good news on, on the pandemic is the investment level required to be ready is very small. Um, you know, a billion a year at the global level, uh, then some of these R&D things, which will have uh, non-pandemic applications. So compared to something huge like the military budget or what we have to do to avoid climate change, this is pretty modest. And this year, you know, I hope my book, you know, kicks off the debate while we still have in mind that the the price for not stopping uh, these things before they become pandemics is absolutely gigantic. I'd love to talk about business's reaction, how this has changed how we work. You famously in the early days would memorize the license plates of people who worked at Microsoft so that you could see when people showed up and when they left. One of the things that feels like we've learned from this pandemic is that, in fact, we don't have to go to the office. Actually, I'd be curious, do you think that is one of the lessons from this? Certainly for a lot of activities, uh, a lot of the time, you don't need to be in the office. And even to me, you know, we're all this digital stuff, Skype, Teams, you know, Microsoft's uh, been a leader. Uh, I was impressed by how much we could get done uh, on a global basis. The foundation, you know, operated at full speed, even though, you know, I haven't been to those offices now for a little bit over two years. Wow. So do you think that we go back or is this the new normal? I think the amount of experimentation going on is really great. Uh, you know, I think there's only a few organizations that will go 100% virtual, but, you know, I think a lot could say, okay, we have one week out of four that we expect people to be available for face-to-face -face meetings. I think a lot of organizations are doing uh, something that's too modest in my view, which is saying, okay, you know, Mondays and Fridays, you can work from home. You know, that seems uh, not to capture the full benefit of flexibility. You know, then you have to be in that city because you're going in every week. And you're also, because all the companies are still coming in, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the kind of traffic uh, is the same. You can't share offices. Uh, so those offices are, are idle some of the time. Um, I applaud the companies that are really trying out very different models. I think young people are more open-minded. I think in some ways managers are less open-minded, uh, but a lot of experiments are being run. Um, and it's interesting to talk to people like, if you were a new employee at the foundation during the pandemic, you know, how was that experience versus those of us who really knew each other from the history of face-to-face -face interaction? And, you know, can you take more than meetings just casually hanging around and create some digital equivalent of that? Uh, really a lot of investment going in to make these tools better. So are new employees at the foundation able to form the same kind of bonds or do you think that they are at a disadvantage? We have to do something uh, that's a little bit, that happens naturally when you're in an office and it's a little bit unnatural in that digital thing to get groups together to just talk informally or you know, after a meeting to have some group that says, hey, is that a typical meeting or was that one particularly you know, tough and, uh, you know, did everybody get the right message? Um, you know, you can see when you walk out of meeting, people kind of clustering together and kind of uh, making sure 
and they they go away with the right understanding. We don't have digital equivalents for the water cooler, for you know, just hanging out at the end of the day. And so I think we can make digital very close for jobs where you're not actually physically um, building things. We're going to take a quick break. Stick around for more with Bill Gates. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back with Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates. There's a line in Bill's book, and it's a bit of an offhand mention, but it caught my attention. He talks about a particular kind of needle that people can use on their own without any kind of help from doctors or nurses. The needle is used in developing countries to help administer vaccines that eradicate childhood diseases. And Bill talked about how hard it is to get those needles now because of COVID. It made me curious to know what other issues have gotten less attention and less investment and have gotten worse as we all struggle to fight COVID. Here's Bill. Well, in developing countries, getting those vaccines out is super important. That's how you stop uh, measles and diarrhea. And we've fallen behind. And for Africa, that gap in health service uh, is led to more deaths than even COVID directly. Um, and now the economic effects there are also very tough because they didn't have the big government aid programs that rich countries, particularly the US, were able to put into place. Now, when you look at the hangover of the pandemic in terms of these deficits and with Ukraine uh, being a big focus and very expensive in terms of defense costs and electricity costs, I do worry that we'll never get that catch up, hmm. particularly in, in Africa. And are you seeing it in the numbers? Yes, absolutely. A lot of vaccination sessions were canceled because they were worried that that gathering would spread the disease. And now that we look back on it, we could have done that safely. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, some of the personnel were off working on other things. Uh, so it may take us two years before we even get back to the level we were at before the pandemic. So are you worried about global health issues and energy breakthroughs in an even greater way than you were before the pandemic? Have we set back the world because of this? We didn't slow down the innovation. So uh, their you know, investment money and good ideas in uh, that energy space uh, where my efforts are under the breakthrough energy Label that actually did go full speed ahead, and I'm very excited about the work there. 
Uh, even in medicines, having this uh, vaccine platform, mRNA, and understanding uh, infection a bit better. So that also went forward very quickly. Government budgets and debt levels, that's where I worry that anytime there's a distraction, it's the low-income countries that end up paying the price for that. You know, fertilizer, wheat, everything's more expensive. In the end, somebody doesn't get it. The shortage isn't just a higher price. It's some people priced out altogether. And um, sadly, uh, that'll be a very negative impact on, on Africa. And the capacity to help out with aid uh, will be reduced because of all the attention and resources that, you know, somewhat appropriately are going to this war that um, we didn't expect. So the foundation changes its uh, focus or investments because of that or not? Well, for us, global health is the big priority. Uh, you know, we're going to help participate in getting some good pandemic pre preparation uh, in place. Although in the long run, that's got to be uh, government funded. Uh, you know, we'll try and help out uh, with better seeds that, you know, in some cases you don't need as much fertilizer. Uh, our general focus, you know, helping poor countries as the biggest thing and then uh, education as our second biggest thing, that remains the same. Got it. And would you talk about you and Melinda have gotten divorced, the, but you're still both active in the foundation. How does that work? How, how, how do you work together? What kind of lessons are there for others who are trying to do something similar? Well, we, you know, throughout uh, last year, which was tough in a lot of ways, we kept working together. You know, our views on uh, the values of the foundation and the great people we hire and our ability to drive innovation. You know, we've been part of uh, cutting childhood death in half. You know, we've been able to take the Microsoft resources and Warren Buffett's resources and get them out uh, to save tens of millions of lives. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, that partnership remains intact. In fact, it never really uh, faced uh, any difficulties. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy having her as a, a partner in that. Has it changed any of the processes or have you guys learned to work differently or in a new way? I feel like there's so much of us in, in, in the professional world, whether you're married to someone or whether you just have to get along with someone that you maybe you don't you, you don't get along with, but you still have a, a common interest or a common set of goals. You got to learn to work with people. I don't know if there's any lesson in this from, from you two. Well, we have to be more explicit about uh, brainstorming before meetings. You know, that would sort of come naturally uh, just as you're doing normal walks. It's one of the topics come up. come up. Now we look out at the next few weeks and say, okay, uh, you know, is this meeting, uh, you know, where they're asking for more headcount or a change of strategy, you know, how do we see that? Are we ready to make that decision? Do we see it the same way? So that's a tiny bit uh, more formal, uh, but, you know, we're so used to uh, brainstorming about strategy and, you know, building teams with the right set of skills. Uh, you know, that's my full-time work. It's her full-time work. We'd, we'd really miss not having that. Mm -hmm. So still speaking the same language, basically. Yeah. One of the things that we've seen on LinkedIn during the pandemic is a rise in a, the kind of conversations, a change in the kind of conversations that professionals have. One really interesting one, one that has absolutely kind of dominated the trending topics in the last few years has been mental health. 
mental health in the workplace, this was not a conversation that was sort of an accepted conversation among managers, between managers and employees. It feels like things have changed. And I'm wondering whether you've seen any of that, whether you've noticed it, what you think about the rise in people being, uh, especially at work, talking about mental health as as a topic. I'm not an expert on this. Um, I know that the stress and strain of the pandemic, you know, was tough through in all workplaces. You had particularly women who were trying to balance all the things they were doing, you know, and were men stepping up to help with those things. Was that an overload for them? And, you know, in the extreme case, you know, that can, you know, really hurt your mental health. And so, you know, I hope, uh, you know, I know a lot of meetings, you know, we'd start off and say, how are you? What's going on with you? Um, you know, I learned a lot more about people's family situations to try and make sure that uh, where they had demands there, we weren't uh, asking them to, to uh, work harder than they should. You know, so, you know, just general care about work-life balance. I think that awareness is, is very helpful. I do think there's been a trend to be more open about, uh, hey, I'm, you know, stressed out or I have some particular problem. I think that's a, a constructive trend. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who are just getting into the workplace now? People who are just figuring out they're getting out of college. They've had the last couple of years have been their education maybe has changed, how they deal with people has changed. They're trying to figure out how to make it and work. What's your advice you give these days? Well, you know, you really have to think in your work, are you doing it in a steady state way? You know, and what part of the job do you enjoy? What parts don't you enjoy? And if you think about, you know, over time, uh, are you getting yourself into a position that, you know, it's mostly the good stuff? I don't think there's any job that's, you know, completely uh, all the fun stuff. Some, you know, some personnel things just are necessary, but not not going to be the joyful part of, of work. You know, for me, uh, the political side is important, but if I had to do that over half the time, I'd... Uh, and I didn't have the piece connected up with innovation and teams of, of innovators and seeing those things get out in the field, I don't think I'd get re-energized uh, to do the job overall. And, you know, so thinking explicitly about your needs, uh, what renews you, um, you know, telling your coworkers things they do that are draining your energy. Um, you know, I'm glad that people are open-minded to those conversations, even uh, you know, telling me, uh, you know, did I make their job particularly fulfilling or, you know, do they feel like it's it's pushing them harder than they want to uh, so they might face burnout issues? Yeah, you like getting that kind of feedback? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm so much more mellow now than I was, you know, 20 years yeah. ago. I mean, you know, 20 years ago when I'm CEO of Microsoft and it seems like there's not a minute to waste, I don't think uh, at the end of the meeting, if somebody had said to me, hey, that was a stressful meeting, and I would have said, okay, let's just sit around and talk about that. Uh, that's really important to me. Uh, so, you know, you know, as I've gotten older and, and stepped back, you know, I'm not on the front lines of uh, doing things now. And, you know, I do help assemble teams. I've seen, uh, you know, if you push too hard, that's often counterproductive. Um, so, yes, I think... You know, I'm, it's somewhat in line with the times that I'm 
you know, the long-term uh, uh, capabilities and what you contribute is way more important than, than the short-term. So if you could go back 20 years and tell the Bill Gates CEO to ask those kind of questions, to chill out, to find out, you know, leave some space for the discussions about how people are doing, would you, or do you think that you did it right for the time? Well, within the engineering teams, um, you know, we selected for a certain type of individual and, you know, we were able to build incredible teams. As I was working with, you know, the sales teams or uh, other teams, you know, some of those shortcomings uh, probably held things back. It's hard, you know, when things work as well as they did, you know, it's hard to say, oh, yeah, I could have done that in Kumbaya. Uh, you know, the intensity selected for a certain type of person, and we missed out on other people's talents. My foundation work, we need such a mix of talents. It's not just, you know, day and night coders and we'll blow the competition away just with our, our software. Right. We have a bunch of questions coming in, and I want to get a couple of these. Uh, James from Montreal asks, how was the Gates Foundation invested in fighting disinformation for COVID-19? Well, we have a history with the polar eradication campaign of looking at why people are refusing to take vaccines. You know, in Nigeria, there was a rumor that it was sterilizing women. And we said, OK, who do those people trust? In that case, it was the religious leaders. And so having them visibly vaccinate their children and say, look, this is good for my daughters. Uh, and, you know, we had time and that was successful. We eventually got rid of wild polio in Nigeria, uh, despite those, those headwinds. So understanding those trust networks uh, is very important. And, you know, during the, the pandemic, that broke down. And uh, MJ, a New York education director, asked, how can we support parents in teaching children about health safety? Well, you know, hopefully you can make health an interesting topic. And you know, here, sadly, we have examples of, uh, you know, where, you know, infection gets in and gets to an elder person, you know, so there's a lot at stake of good practice, uh, trying not to, to spread infection. You know, I hope, you know, kids are interested in these things and, uh, you know, you can find people who explain it, make it, it simple. Um, you know, I love medicine. We're getting smarter all the time. Well, years ago, I know you did an energy breakthrough uh, uh, focus just for kids. So on high school kids in particular, maybe there's a version of this for, uh, you know, how, how to stop the next pandemic just for kids. I'm not sure if you're thinking along those lines. Yeah, we need to get it into the, into the uh, curriculum. That was Bill Gates. To dive deeper into this conversation, check out my newsletter on LinkedIn. You can find it right on my profile, and it's also called This Is Working. Bill said something so interesting that he's more open to feedback now that he's in a different stage of his career. How does that play out for you? Are you more or less able to take and give feedback than you used to be? What's helped you improve? Tag me into the conversation on LinkedIn or wherever you start your conversations using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. I can't wait to read your thoughts. This Is Working is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm and Stephen Valdivia produced this week's show with help from Victoria Taylor, Candace Weiner, and our video production team, including Elias Avalos, Wes Wingo, Derek Carl, and Greg Lee. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. And I'm Dan Roth. 
LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.